0: Welcome to the Holy Conundrums podcast. My name is Everett Fritz. I am blessed to be joined today by Deacon Charlie Etcheverry, who is the host of Living the Call podcast. He is a Catholic deacon out in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And today we are going to be discussing the Latino church and the unique challenges that there are ministering to the Latino church. So welcome, Deacon Charlie. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about you and the ministry that you do out in uh, Los Angeles and your unique background. I know that you have a huge background in media.
1: Yeah. So born in California, got back to California when I was late 20s by way of about five different countries. Grew up all over Latin America and the Caribbean. Kind of lost my faith in my college years. Not kind of. I did, essentially, even though I would never have told you that I didn't believe in God. But nevertheless, I wasn't living a an integrated Catholic life. In fact, I strive toward that even still today and basically met my wife and through her conversion to the faith, I had a very strong reversion to the faith. I, I eventually discerned a call to the diaconate. I was ordained in 2017, so it's been five years. In fact, next month is my fifth year anniversary of my ordination. And then in terms of my professional life, I've been in the media industry really for 20 years, working here in Los Angeles. So kind of, in some respects, the belly of the beast (laughs) working in secular media. But for the last several years, I've had a strategic advisory that advises and works with other companies and brands to help them understand how the country has evolved and changed. And now increasingly, in the Holy Spirit's great sort of irony and comic sense of humor, he's now using a lot of those tools Hopefully, for the benefit of the church, because we are now working with a lot of Catholic organizations as well in my professional life. So, anyway, that's a little bit about me. I'm married 20 plus years. I've got five kids, one in heaven, four on earth, and privileged to be with you. Thanks, Deacon Charlie. So, I want to get, dig
0: in, just jump right into the Latino church. You are a Catholic deacon out in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. You have a Latino background yourself. Yes, sir. Colombian. Okay, Colombian. Thank you. And the Latino church in the United States of America is now. I believe the majority of the Catholic Church if not it's growing to be. And I know that I like I've been doing ministry for 16 years, youth ministry primarily, and like I've got a big blind spot here. Not that I haven't ministered to Latinos, but it's like I didn't grow up Latino, and I know that from having ministered to the Latinos that I've ministered to, it's like, oh, you have a very different background of Catholicism in your own experience and such. I mean, tell us a little bit about your experience in in ministering to Latinos, like what is it that the common everyday Catholic needs to know about the Latino church and their experience?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, let's start first with the size of the opportunity or what you just described. So it's not yet the majority of the Catholic church, but it is the plurality of the Catholic church, meaning it's the largest single segment. Right now in the U.S., about 40% of all Catholics, four zero percent of all Catholics are Hispanic, which is a huge number already in its own right. And if you look at the younger church, so the young Catholics, Catholics under 18, 63% of Catholics under 18 are Hispanic. And, you know, in terms of a moment of inflection, different models show it in a different way. But in about four to five years, the majority, that's the moment that it happens, the majority of the church just outright will be Hispanic. And that's driven by a lot of the demographic growth that we've seen. And the fact that, you know, praise be to God, the Latino community still Has less of a kind of abortifacient mentality or a uh, sterilization mentality and still tends to have larger families, although that is also beginning to change. So the starting point is that there's a lot of Catholics who come from the Latino background, and that's pretty much the only demographic group in the US church that is growing. So the trend lines, if you kind of map them out over time, just indicate that the church continues to get significantly more Latino, although ironically, it also overall tends to shrink. So you get this weird dynamic where you got like a lot of Latinos, very Latino church, but a smaller church over time. And so it's a really weird thing. So that's like the size of the opportunity just to kind of start with that. And usually when I share that with people, it's a bit of an eye opener, right? Because depending on where you worship and where you're living your Catholic faith, you may not see that necessarily reflected either in your town or diocese or certainly in your parish, but that's the truth of the raw numbers. Awesome.
0: So, what's the typical Catholic, I guess you could say, Catholic experience in terms of like the way that you're, and I know this is a spectrum, but the way that Latinos live their faith, like what's the level of devotion?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. That is a, that's a super great question because <laughs> and I know it's a spectrum. Yeah, no, it is. There's a big caveat, which is all this stuff you kind of have to speak in generalities, right? So of course, your mileage may vary, you may find somebody who's completely bucks this trend. And we have to remember in all these things that we're talking about humans and individuals, and remember the dignity of the human person and not succumb to statistics to kind of do ministry. But for what it's worth, at least directionally, from a devotional standpoint, it's actually really interesting. And I wouldn't have known the answer to this until very, very recently, because some of the research that my firm has done on behalf of some of these Catholic organizations has kind of brought this to light for me. And I had a sense of initially seems to be getting borne out by the data. And the sense that I had initially was this really strong cultural Catholicism that exists. And that is good in some respects because like, at least the groundwork is laid, right? The foundation is laid. You're kind of growing up with this in your DNA or in your background. The downside of that is that it has a tendency to not bubble up in terms of importance because it's just kind of baked into the cake, right? It's like food or music or the kind of celebrations you throw or some family custom, but it's not really a relationship with Jesus and with the church. So From a devotional aspect, if you're looking at, and this is one of the first rules about looking at the Latino church, is you don't average, you de-average, right? So when we're talking about younger folks, younger Latinos, if you were to compare them with other younger folks of the same age and other circumstances, what you find is a higher sense of cultural Catholicism, meaning a lower sense of devotion. And even how you define devotion is an interesting thing. And we kind of hacked it a little bit. We built an algorithm that was based on a bunch of different factors, and then that's what we use to determine devotion for this study that I'm referencing. But anyway, what you find is that if you're younger Catholic, you tend to have this higher sense of cultural Catholicism. You start off Catholic much more often, right? In other words, you're born into the faith. You kind of live it. You have your sacraments, but you also have this crazy dynamic where you're kind of just going through the motions culturally relative to your peers of the same age. So devotion for that younger spectrum tends to be lower. Now, as you look at the older Latino population, the ones that are Spanish dominant, the ones that might be more recent immigrants, there, the devotion is actually higher than the average of the same age and other circumstances. So it's a really interesting dynamic, depending on how you look at the Latino population.
0: Yeah, I know that I I mean, cultural Catholicism, if you're not familiar, if you're listening, you're not familiar with cultural Catholicism. Essentially, it's that your faith doesn't start from a standpoint of A relationship with Jesus Christ like you mentioned devotion it starts from like oh I was raised Catholic in the case of perhaps Hispanics it's comes from a a deep-rooted sense of like the visions and apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe which Our Lady of Guadalupe is a big thing for Hispanic culture and it comes from like I was raised this way it's part of our music it's part of our custom cultural Catholicism eventually falls apart because you can imagine if it doesn't turn into devotion, it eventually goes by way of, it's got to turn into by the wayside. Some point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at a country like Ireland, for example, where cultural Catholic, if you've never been to Ireland, I mean, most people think of Ireland as like Irish Catholic. And it's like, there's little to no actual practice of Catholicism left in the country of Ireland. What's left there is just whatever's been part of the culture forever and ever and ever. I just use that as an example. So just real quick, my biggest background of working with Hispanics, with the Latino church, I spent two years working as a director of youth and family ministry at a parish here in Denver, where I stepped into the role. It was a new pastor. We had a great mindset and idea about how we wanted to go about doing ministry with young people. And I said, tell me about the parish. She says, well, it's part Latino. It's part Vietnamese, and then there's Anglos as well that are the seniors, and they do everything (laughs) in the parish. And I was like, that is the strangest combination of demographic. And the three did not blend, the older Anglos, the Latinos, and Vietnamese. And I tried to engage with the parents and immediately found that I had a, a language barrier that was difficult. And so I started going to workshops at national training conferences, and they were not helpful. In terms of ministering, like, here's how you minister to Latino church, learn to speak Spanish. And I was like, that's not, I'm never going to be good enough. So ultimately, like after two years, I was like, this is not the role for me, but I guess all of that to lead into, like my experience was I cannot minister to Latino people, which really shouldn't be the case. What kind of advice would you have given to somebody in my situation?
1: Yeah, and I'm concerned that that dynamic, which is very real and very human and very reasonable in a way, right? It's like, well, if this is the way to do it and I've got to go learn a new language, I'm going to just be limited in what I can actually do. But my fear is that that dynamic you just described, Everett, is happening all over the place, which is not good, (laughs) right? When you consider the current state of the church and the future of the church. So in terms of advice, I mean, look, I think one of the things to pay attention to is that a strategy that is rooted only in language automatically fails. And that is a big thing for people to wrap their heads around. But it's true, okay? We have a tendency, not just in the church, frankly, like in other places and categories. And, you know, you have secular businesses that are trying to figure out how to get more money from Latinos in the country. And their approach oftentimes is like, let's translate everything. And we see that in the church as well, right? We've got the Spanish mass and we've got this, maybe a Spanish bulletin. And then the priest from Guatemala or Mexico comes in and does, you know, a parish mission or whatever it is. And that's how we minister to this community. And I look at that and while none of those things are bad, they're not, they're good. But when I look at that, the downside of it is, is that many people in parish leadership you know, kind of going to the topic of this podcast, right? Conundrums and kind of frustrations in the church. Many, many folks look at that and say, hey, job well done. Like, that's it. Like, we're good, right? We've done this translation and that's about all that we can do. And the reality of it is, is that's just like table stakes, right? That's like somebody, that's like, I equate it with a, you know, you want to launch a company and you ask me whether or not you should have a website. Well, like, yeah, you should have a website. I don't know what that does in terms of your success in launching a new company or brand. There's a lot more to do than just launch a website. So the idea of having things that are in language, great, but that's table stakes. And that doesn't go at all to the idea of engagement and actually connecting with people, which is what ministry is about, right? Connect with people, engage with them, help them to build this relationship with Jesus. And when we have this kind of translation mindset, it doesn't do that. And frankly, I think it actually foments this dynamic of one church or one parish, but two churches, right? Or one church, two parishes, however you want to look at it which does exist in the country, right? The dynamic you just described with the Vietnamese, Latino, and Anglo community, and it's the Anglos that do everything. I've seen that so much. And when you look behind that, when you kind of peel back the onion a little bit, what you find, generally speaking, is a parish leadership team, including the pastor, that knows 100% about 20% of their parish, right? I know everything about this very small group of folks, which is why those are my pe- the people who are do- in ministry. Those are the folks who are, maybe financially supporting the parish in the most significant way and the ones that are most involved in ministries, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, that's like an issue of invitation and of engagement and of intentionality. And all of these things need to matter. It has to matter. and It requires more work. That's the kind of challenge, right? So that's a long way of asking what I would tell you for advice, but I would say it starts with actually being intentional about your engagement. And part of that is actually getting smarter about what that particular congregation needs.
0: I know that I was in my own parish recently. We had listening sessions for the synod process, synod on synodality. And there was a lot of conversations about we need to be doing this in ministry or that or whatever the case may be and i rate post the question i said hey what's the profile of the typical parishioner here and they were like profile what are you talking about i was like like tell me about <laughs> which i mean you have a business background and we've been working in media like profiling your customer is very common but parishes don't do that work. I said, well, what's the profile? Like, who are we ministering to? In most cases, the decisions on ministry were being made about basically like, what's the pastor's preference? Like, I like sacred music, so we're going to do sacred music. I like stained glass windows, so we're doing a capital campaign to fix the stained glass windows. Like, it boggles my mind why that would, I was like, okay, give me the profile. What we figured out in the parish that was (laughs) Vietnamese, Hispanic, and, and Anglo, is we said the profile is I mean, we put together a whole Wednesday night parent sessions, basically, like while the kids were in religious ed, because they had all signed their kids up for religious ed, we would have catechesis for the parents. This was not my plan. This was somebody else's. And I was like, this is not going to work. And sure enough, like those of the Latino community, the parents stayed in the car. And when we actually did the work to go out to the cars and ask them like, hey, why? Oh, they don't understand English. Like we're not. We're literally putting together a program that didn't profile the people we're ministering to, which is why it's so important to understand, like, the people you minister to. It started good conversations on the staff because we said, okay, like, what are we doing? What's our Sunday experience? Okay, we do coffee and donuts. Well, even among, we were like, we shouldn't be doing coffee and donuts because. Not to be not at all, just saying I know where where you're going. (laughs) I'm sure Hispanic people eat donuts. Like who doesn't want to eat a donut? But we said maybe we should do like Coca-Cola and churros. Like we just this was such a like an Anglo way of thinking. We were just like, I don't know, what do people eat? But it was it was revealed to us such a like a lack of understanding that we had of the people that we were actually responsible for ministering to.
1: It's super interesting man. You brought up two really important points, right? One of them is this dynamic that you describe with the parents in the car and the kids in this program kind of going through this formation because I presume the formation was in English, right? What you were doing in that parish. And of course, that makes sense because the kids, they were born here. They're going to school in English. They text their friends in English. They don't like change their language settings when they go on Snapchat, right? I mean, they're American. They're coming up in that way. But they oftentimes live in households that are very multi-generational, oftentimes have immigrant parents who have a completely different experience. And that tension between those two places is a big part of uh, the opportunity, I look at it, but also, of course, the risk, because you have these dual dynamics that are happening and there's not that connective tissue from a faith perspective to connect those two, Right. And so that's a huge point. There's lots we could say about that. The second one is about the food, right? Because even though, and I know you're hesitant to say this, but I actually think that the questioning of that is actually really good because it's exactly the kind of thing that doesn't happen very often, right? So what you end up with is like, well, I guess Latinos don't like fellowship because they don't, you know, we had the donuts and coffee out, right? But a little bit of digging beneath peeling the onion a little bit will help you find if you go to any Spanish mass, maybe not any, but most Spanish Masses. And you walk out after Spanish Mass, if you want to look at what fellowship looks like for the Latino community, it's a much more ornate affair, right? It's much more food-based than it is like have a snack or a dessert or whatever it is, right? So you've got taquitos and some pozole and all different kinds of food. And that's a big part of it. And it's also a longer experience. It's not just come in, grab a donut, cup of coffee, say hi to somebody and bail. Some people hang out after my parish. Some people hang out for an hour, just eating and doing whatever. So just the question of how do people do fellowship after mass in the Latino community is exactly the kind of question that people should be asking. But in order to, first of all, you have to ask the question. And number two is you have to actually, again, intentionality, make the effort to find out what that is. Final point. And I get flack for this. So I'll put a little bit of a disclaimer out there. I'm not suggesting that this is what everyone should do, nor the only thing to do. But It's very instructive for someone to just go to Spanish language liturgy. Just show up. It's still your Sunday obligation is fulfilled, right? Go to mass on Sunday in Spanish. Sit in the pews. Look at the people around you. They all live in your community. And then follow them after mass, right? And try to take some of that in, try to understand what's happening. And I don't mean you have to learn Spanish, but what I mean by that is that is at least one way that you can understand and see what makes this community tick so you can get a better sense of how to minister to them. To me, it's so simple. It's like market research, right? Like, that's what I would do as a business person. Like, where are they? What are they doing? Let me find out about them, right? It's a really easy way and tons of parishes, like tons and tons of them have at least one Spanish liturgy, at least one. In some cases, most of the liturgies are in Spanish because the Anglo community is the one that's actually shrinking. So that's an easy way, right? But sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, like I have to learn Spanish and that's not what I mean. I don't mean that. In fact, I think that just this language approach is part of the division, but nevertheless, it's a way to get an input at the very least.
0: Yep. This is something that I wish I'd hit record before we were talking before that I started the podcast and I said, most I've ever learned about Hispanic culture in terms of ministering to Hispanic culture. I was talking to a a young woman who works for the church, who was part of a family that came over to migrated to the United States illegally, which I don't want to put forth the stereotype of like all Hispanic. If you're doing Hispanic ministry, you got to be thinking about, they all came here illegally. That's not the case at all. But in the case of those who are coming from families that came over illegally, she said, look, you have to lead with, in terms of ministering to these people, lead with healing. And the reason why she said that is that she's like, look, my experience was my family entrusted me to a coyote, which I mean, a coyote is, well, I don't know if you can give a better definition than I can, but she says in a lot of cases, in order to keep the child quiet, they drug the child to bring them over so that they don't make a sound this leads to a lot of cases. If you have a bad coyote trafficking and things of that nature, the parents have this fear. Am I ever going to see my child again? Then they live in fear. Once everybody gets over, they live in fear of being discovered and are they going to be deported? And she says that is traumatic and trauma needs to be healed. And I don't know if you can give any insight into like, what's the experience. I know this wasn't your experience, but what's the experience of those who are migrating over here who are coming over living in fear and trauma just by nature of their experience?
1: Yeah. And I think that's a huge question and I'll kind of tease it out a little bit. So number one is the way I would define a coyote is like if Satan had an Uber driver, right? Cause that's basically what it is, right? It's the devil's Uber because it's brutal It's basically cartel-run courier system that smuggles people into the country, oftentimes violating them, raping them, drugging them, to your point, and a thousand other things. And by the way, you get to pay for the privilege to make things worse because they don't do it for free. So it's just about as awful a dynamic as you can possibly imagine. And not everybody who comes illegally experiences this but many, many do, and some who don't, or even the ones who do, die in the process of kind of making that trek. All those things are true. Now, in terms of the question of healing, well, of course, if I've had that experience, and that's been my entree into this American experience has been through brutality and fear, and I'm now living with the trauma of that experience and further living with this idea that I've got to kind of hide from everybody because God forbid somebody find out where I'm from I may get shipped back into that mess. You can imagine the kind of spiritual dimensions that might exist among that population. So you have to really bear that in mind when you're speaking into that community, particularly into the immigrant community, which depending on where you are in the country may or may not be more pronounced. By immigrant, I mean kind of first-generation immigrant, right? We're all immigrants, but that's not what I mean. I mean like first-generation, just got here kind of thing. So I think that that aspect of healing is actually important. And honestly, Everett, the more I think about the ills of our society, whether it's abortion, homelessness, illegal immigration, all of these things, I think all of them are not problems to be solved, but things to be healed. So I think all of them have fallen to that dynamic of healing. And I think that that's important. But What I would advise folks to do, and this is part of the accompaniment and the engagement that's required in doing all ministry, but specifically ministry here, is that the very first thing you have to do is the point you brought up earlier, which is know who you're talking to, right? So the easy way to find out somebody's experience is just simply to meet them and ask them you know, hey, how are you? My name is, what's your name? What was your experience? Find out about them and that way you know whether or not that healing dynamic may be something that is at play in their particular walk. For other Latinos, right, particularly second, third, fourth generation, folks who were born here or folks who came here as older folks, you know, that kind of thing, that healing lean at least based on immigration, may not be as sort of effective or whatever because that's not necessarily their experience. But you're not going to know that if you don't walk with folks and kind of learn who they are. So that's what I would say about that. I think it is important, but the more important message for me is walk with folks, get to learn that local community, spend a little bit of time steeped in it so that you can understand the best way to kind of speak into the experience of the people that you're ministering to.
0: Yeah, I know for me, it was eye-opening because, well, one, I could relate to it. Not from a standpoint of like, I have any experience with coyotes and living in fear and things of that nature, but I can relate to the need for healing. And the reason why I say that is that I know that a lot of ministry that we do for parents in general or families in general tends to be catechesis based. And I've also known from doing 16 years of ministry that if you meet somebody who's wounded, which is most of us, and that person is living in fear or living in pain or the decisions are being made in their lives because of the wounds that they live with, no amount of catechesis is going to bring that person to devotion in the faith that you've got to address that root wound first and minister to that, which is why at the end of the day, like good ministry is relational in general, because it's not about getting up and giving classes to people in the faith. It's about getting to know people and ministering to them where they're at, which you'll never know where they're at unless you get to know them. I didn't have a question with that, but that was just my own insight.
1: It's fine. And it's the right one. You know, the relational piece of it applies to all ministry, right? You got to kind of walk with folks learn who they are in an effort to best understand the way to help them with their healing. And God willing, somebody's doing that for you too, right? Because to your point, we're all broken on some level and we're all wounded. And if somebody's just going to talk to me about something, well, that's not going to be as effective no matter who we are. The interesting thing about this sort of experience dynamic, and we've seen this a lot in our kind of research as well, my research professionally, is the kind of issues that people are interested in, right? And all of this needs to be de-averaged too. If you talk about folks who are more recent immigrants and who are more Spanish dominant, they actually do care quite a bit about immigration and the way the country feels about immigration and all of those different things. As you get younger and more second, third generation, they care less, but they do care more about issues of Social justice and what's going on with all of these issues that we hear about all the time same sex attraction and transsexual and abortion and like all these different issues that are more kind of socially based. And you have to understand that dynamic so that you can again better minister to them. And it also kind of highlights to me some of the big gaps that we have, right? Because again, think of that experience that you illustrated where you've got the parents in the car and you've got the kid in the parish and the kids being maybe made to go to this thing by the parents, right? Because they want them to retain their faith. But there's not that connective tissue between the kid and the parent as it relates to faith because they're literally speaking different languages, right? So in that dynamic, I bring up the example of like what went down with George Floyd a couple of years ago, right? You've got a young Latino kid, second, third generation coming up in wherever it is, you know, name your town. And he's hearing from all of his friends Here's this social justice moment that we all believe in. And this young Latino goes back and asks his parents, hey, how do we feel about George Floyd? And they go, who? Like, what are you talking about? I don't even know who that is. Like, I'm not plugged in that way. And then if you think about, well, where are these young people getting their answers about how we should view issues like this? Issues like race. Issues like, again, sexuality and all these. Where are they getting those answers from? Well, they're not getting them from their parents because their parents have a different cultural experience in most cases. And they're really not getting in the church because again, by and large, these young kids go to the Spanish liturgy and they have, it's almost like their parents are the ones that are running the mass, right? So they don't have that connection there either. So where do they turn? Well, they turn to all the places where frankly, we don't want them to turn to, but they nevertheless do. Their peers, social media, etc., to kind of get these different answers. So there's this whole field of what Pope Francis calls creative apologetics that I think could be applied in this case, because those folks are kind of orphans, right, spiritually right now. They don't fit in the parish, they don't fit at home, and they kind of don't fit out in the world, and so they're floating. And that's a big opportunity, but it's a big watch out for everyone in ministry. Thank you. Gosh,
0: that's so insightful.
1: And I could go on and on and on, but we're out of time. So, (laughs) no worries. Part two next time. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I'll (laughs) have to have
0: you back on again. We'll talk more. But, Deacon Charlie, if you wouldn't mind, plug your Living the Call podcast and any other ministry. Tell us where people can learn more about all the great work that you do.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Everett. So, deaconcharlie.com is the easy way to do it. Just deaconcharlie.com. Everything is there. I'm really hyped about my podcast, Living the Call. And Living the Call is just having conversations with super interesting people who are living their Christian vocation and positions of influence. So filmmakers, CEOs, bishops, scientists, artists, you kind of name it. And what I want to do with that show is just introduce people to really interesting folks who are being the leaven out in the world and trying to bring the faith into all of these spaces and places that need it. So Living the Call, it's available on any platform, wherever you listen to podcasts, you could check it out but an easy place to find out everything there is to know about me and the ministries that I'm involved with, deaconcharlie.com.
0: Thank you so much, Deacon Charlie. This Holy Conundrums podcast is a ministry of Andrew Ministries, which is run by myself, Everett Fritz. And I have a new book out that I've been asked to plug by my publisher, I hate plugging my own stuff. <laughs> it makes me feel like I need a shower afterwards, but the book is called One Disciple at a Time. It's through Ave Maria Press. And it's actually out today as the day of this recording, even though this will air much later than the release date, but you get the gist of it anyway. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you again, Deacon Charlie. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your ministry. I'll be a guest on Living the Call in the Future as well. So,
1: Absolutely. Everett, can I give your audience a blessing?
0: Yeah, please do, Deacon.
1: May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And may the prosperity of this podcast go far and wide. Amen.
0: Amen. All right. Thank you again, Deacon Charlie.